The Civil Engineering Podcast is published by the Engineering Management Institute and is part of EMI's Civil Engineering Media and Entertainment Network, which can be found at cement.media. That's cement, C-E-M-E-N-T dot media. Welcome to episode number 195 of the Civil Engineering Podcast, the first podcast dedicated to helping civil engineering professionals succeed in work and life. What is the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act, and what does it mean for civil engineers and their firms? I'm your host, Anthony Fasano, and in this episode of the Civil Engineering Podcast, I have the great honor to talk with Dennis Truax, President of the American Society of Civil Engineers and the Professor Emeritus of the Richard A. Rula School of Civil and Environmental Engineering at Mississippi State University about this new legislation and how it will affect civil engineering companies in the short and the long term. During his 41 years, Dennis served as school director, department head, and professor. He held the James T. White Endowed Chair for 15 years and was director or co-director of the Mississippi Transportation Research Institute for 13 years. Dennis served on ASCE's Board of Direction as a director and society treasurer. He has worked on numerous ASCE committees and task forces, and he was faculty advisor to the Mississippi State ASCE student chapter for 26 years. Before we get started, this is a free show, and our sponsors help us keep it free. So I'd like to thank our sponsor for today's episode, Collier's Engineering and Design. Collier's Engineering and Design is a multidiscipline engineering firm with over 1,800 employees in 63 offices nationwide and growing fast. Collier's Engineering and Design maintains an internal culture that is nurtured through the promotion of integrity, collaboration, and socialization. Their employees enjoy hybrid work environments, continuous career advancement, health and wellness offerings, and programs and projects that have a positive impact on society. Collier's Engineering and Design stays on the cutting edge of technology and their entrepreneurial approach to expansion provides personal and professional development opportunities across the firm. Leadership's dedication to the well-being of their employees and their families is demonstrated throughout the wide range of benefits and programs available to them. For more information, visit the career page on their website at colliersengineering.com. I also want to mention that we have some new sessions of our people leadership program, as well as our project management programs starting up soon. We do general programs that you can enroll in, or we do company-only programs. We can even custom design a PM training program for your firm. You could check out our programs at engineeringmanagementinstitute.org. Just click the upcoming training button in the top of the website, or give us a call. 800-920-4007. All right, let's dive into our Civil Engineering Conversation of the Week with Dennis D. Truax. Civil Engineering Podcast. Civil Engineering Podcast. All right, now I'm excited to welcome on our guest for today, Dennis Truax. Dennis is the current National President of the American Society of Civil Engineers. Dennis, welcome to the Civil Engineering Podcast. Thanks for inviting me. This is a real pleasure and uh, I appreciate you investing the time in me to be here today. No, for sure, Dennis. I think our listeners are excited to hear from you. We always love touching base with you know ASCE leadership, especially in light of everything that's going on. I mean, it's a real busy time for civil engineers right now with the Infrastructure Act, which we're going to talk about here. But before we do that, let's start with yourself a little bit. Tell us what you do in your day job and what you do for ASCE, which is probably one of the same almost right now, but give us a little background of what Dennis does. And the reason you put it that way, as you know, but the listeners may not, after 41 years on the academic faculty at Mississippi State University, culminating in being the director of the Rural School of Civil and Environmental Engineering, 
director of the Mississippi Transportation Research Center and a number of other things at the state level, working in agencies or whatever, I retired at the end of May 2021. I did that for a variety of reasons, but in part, it was because I wanted to devote as much time as I could to ASCE and in service to the ASCE membership. This is an opportunity that I have not really aspired to for very long, but it it was an opportunity that I saw coming and a need to get engaged at this level to be impactful. And so my day today, these days, is driven largely by the needs of the membership and the society. One day I'll be speaking to a group internationally via web conference. The next day I'll be in meetings with organizations, committees, task committees, staff committees, working on programs, products that uh, improve what we do for civil engineers. The next day I might be meeting with public officials or giving testimony in a Senate hearing on the infrastructure uh, needs of that community or that particular uh, governmental area. And then there's just a horrendous number of conversations and engagements that are involved. So talking is a large part of what I do. Being present is a large part of what I do. And uh, after 41 years in an academic environment, talking is not a big problem. In fact, the biggest problem is getting me to shut up. What you do is great. What ASCE does is great. And I think having someone as the president kind of representing the profession and doing all the things you've explained is a great thing for us as civil engineers. And we appreciate you know, your dedication and your time. One thing you mentioned there, I just want to highlight for those out there that aren't that don't know this, that ASCE does do work outside of the United States, correct? Correct. We have over 150,000 members in ASCE at this time. And our membership's actually increasing through a variety of programs that we've been putting in over the past 18 months to 24 months. And that's on a global basis. We have uh, members of our society today in 177 different countries, and we're expanding. We're looking at uh, four or five additional countries, uh, even regions, that have reached out to us to say, we want to be part of ASC. Dennis, right now, it's a busy time for the world of civil engineering. I mean, we work with a lot of civil engineering companies and we hear from a lot of civil engineers and they can't even handle the work they have now. And oh, by the way, biggest piece of legislation related to infrastructure is kind of here, which is what I want to talk to you a little bit about, the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act. I know ASCE has been a huge proponent of lobbying for all funding and resources related to infrastructure and you know, a big part of helping this happen. Talk to us about this act. Just for those that aren't that familiar with it yet, they've heard about it. What is it? IIJA, or the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act, as I think most people know, is a $1.2 trillion five-year program that invests in something in the neighborhood of about 17 different infrastructure areas. All 17 of those areas are outlined and were defined and have been evaluated in our most recent report card. In fact, we've been doing the report card for over two decades. And as a result of this persistence, and in fact, being an honest broker and recognized as an honest broker, yes, civil engineers are going to benefit from the results of what this act is going to put in place. But we did it because of our commitment to protecting the health, safety, and welfare of the public. Our commitment as civil engineers to make the quality of life better, to support economic and social program progress. 
And with that, we also hold up and acknowledge and celebrate the fact that in that 17 different report card categories that are embraced, there are 43 different specific recommendations that ASE made in our last report card that are actually codified, included specifically in this legislation. What does this mean? It means that we talked about a $1.2 trillion deficit in spending as projected at the time of our last report card over the next 10 years. Well, we just got handed $1.2 trillion to be spent and applied to improvement of infrastructure, making better infrastructure for the next five years. So this is obviously going a long way to making up what we anticipate the needs going to be to starting today and in the future. Now, of course, there's a lot more to be done. And this funding gap is based on a number of factors. And so our job's not finished. Now, to talk about specifics, of course, recognize that this particular distribution is going to be a process of uh, using existing programs and some new programs. It's going to be using uh, formula distributions that are already in place in all of the federal agencies, and there are going to be some grant programs put together, competitive grant programs for specific projects that will advance the quality of life and improve economic competitiveness in particular regions. If you look at, for example, the largest chunk is going to uh, transportation. The Department of Transportation is getting the lion's share of the funds. And then within that, uh, these funds are going to be going in large part to roads, bridges, and other infrastructure. But it's going to be distributed based on state. I'm going to say demographic, and I mean that in terms of infrastructure demographic. If you're a heavy state as far as the amount of road miles that you have, then there's going to be more money devoted and allocated based on the fact that you've got all these roads to maintain and potentially replace or upgrade. If you've got a big transit area, then that's going to play into the formula as well. And if you've got a lot of transit, then you're going to get transit dollars. And all the different segments within transportation are going to be impacted that way. But then again, if you have a special bridge program, and there's several out there that are really changing quality of life, cutting down the time travel time from point A to point B, there's opportunities for funding that as well. Before we go a little bit further on this, Dennis, I want to stop for a minute and just highlight the ASCE Infrastructure Report Card Program. It's a wonderful program. If you're not familiar with this program, you can go back to episode number 139. We had uh, Peyton Gibson come on and she talked about what goes into developing the ASCE report card. She kind of went through the process, which is important, I think, for everyone to know out there. It's a really important thing for us as civil engineers because we need to communicate and we've needed to communicate, which is one of the reasons that I believe this act is being passed was because we needed to communicate to everybody how bad the infrastructure was and the report card is a wonderful way to do it because everyone knows gotten grades in school, right? A, B, C. So it's a kind of an easier way to communicate that to people. And I think that that's really important. Those are the kind of things that ASCE does that I think is great for the profession, but great for, like Dennis said, as civil engineers, we have to uphold the safety and health of the public. And that's what infrastructure is. So for those out there that are civil engineers, maybe they're firm owners, right? And they're kind of already busy, but now are going to have to brace themselves a little bit and be prepared, I would think, to get some more work coming through here. Is this something that's going to happen now over, you said, five years? It's going to be like go on over time and they'll make evaluations and the funds will get dripped out like that? Let me back up just half a step from that and applaud you for what you just said. I've been using the terminology for most of this cycle with ASCE about becoming servant leaders. 
and recognizing that this profession is a profession, first off, which means we serve others first. That service requires us to stand up and talk to our legislators and talk to our communities about the importance of infrastructure and the impacts that what it is we do and the results of our fruits and our labors as professionals, as civil engineers in producing this infrastructure. Oftentimes referred to as municipal infrastructure, but let's also recognize that what that municipal infrastructure does is support commerce, it supports industry, it defines a quality of life. Our role in doing this is essential, and we have to stop hiding our light under a basket, as it were, and get out and talk to this, because if we don't, people are going to be left short. It's impact. Here's what I see the opportunity is. Yes, civil engineers are in high demand, have been in high demand. We were one of the professions that continued to work and continue to work through this pandemic that we're dealing with. And at times, the construction industry, for example, segment of our profession, had to keep building. They were expected to keep putting buildings up and, and paving roads and doing that. So we've continued on. And what this is going to do, an opportunity for firms and for civil engineers individually, is to rethink how they do their work. It's, again, engaging. And as an academician, I suggest you talk to uh, your various groups. And I'm talking at the civic level now and emphasizing the opportunities. I'm expecting, albeit there's a defined, absolutely guaranteed downturn in, in enrollment for universities as a result of the next dip in population and in that entrance age bracket. We have to fight for a larger share of that, and we need to get students in the pipeline to help. But for today, it's going to be a matter of setting oneself apart to take, move into this, thinking new ways, new products, embracing the full community, the engineers licensed, those engineers who are becoming licensed, those individuals who have uh, expertise to support our profession, engaging the entire STEM society. And then those that are supporting us through their skills, the, the technicians and technologists that we use that run our labs and do our drawings, we need to embrace them as part of this process as well, but as part of rethinking. And then the last piece I'll challenge all the firms to think about, as I'll mention as many times as I can, what this is about is building the right project. It's not building projects right alone. It's deciding what it is that has the appropriate life cycle, costs, it has the right use of materials, it's sustainable, it's resilient, it's robust, and it's done with the vision for the 21st century, not based on the, the technology of the 19th century. And so we need to be thinking forward. And I think those firms that look at new approaches and apply new processes, materials to these solutions are going to be a head and shoulders above those who choose not to. Part of that, of course, then means that these projects are going to be actually larger in scope. It's not just building a road. It's building a transportation corridor. It's building a, a corridor for telecommunications and power and water and sewer and storm, and as well as a variety of vehicles, pedestrian, bike, autonomous, car, truck, commercial, and the list goes on. So we've got to really think outside of the box. And those individuals that are creative and think, I think are going to be the successful ones. The challenge, the hurdle against this is getting so bogged down in the day-to-day that not taking the time to vision for the future. And, that's, and I acknowledge that's a problem, but it's going to be time management. It's going to be an application of people. And it's going to be 
a paradigm for engineering that ASCE has been talking about for over 20 years. Again, another two decades talking about a different way of doing engineering. Delegation, management, visioning, creativity. It's what we do. And Dennis, these funds, they'll be coming soon, first wave? The first wave of funds is, is again, primarily going to be coming through the transportation. It's going to be focused on roads. That formula is well established. That formula is in place. And Secretary Buttigieg is literally meeting today with people in some states' transportation. I've talked to several DOT officials across the U.S., and they are all being asked to come in and sit down with the Secretary and outline how they want to immediately apply. What they're, what we commonly, jokingly sometimes say, are shovel-ready projects in the transportation area with particular roads. And that's, that's going to be the first deployment. Bridges will come online very quickly after that in the transportation area. And then the distribution of funds for the other programs will follow thereafter. You mentioned all the different things we need to think about going forward, the autonomous vehicles. We've had some people on the podcast talking about how roads are going to talk to cars with sensors and all types of things that are going to just keep coming and coming. And I think based on your background, you could probably speak to this. But for engineers in this country that are going to school, civil engineers and you know learning, getting their undergraduate degrees, and how do they address that? Are they addressing some of these newer technologies in the curriculum or are we not there yet? Are these things that are going to have to be taught like in industry? Let's acknowledge that a large part of, and it's been said a lot of different ways, a large part of what's being taught in the collegiate environment is history. This is what we've done. This is how we've done it. These are the formulas, equations, materials, processes, approaches that we've used historically. And we do this in the academic environment, not to say that this is the way it has to be done for the future, but this is the foundation from which you then move forward in developing those new approaches. The one thing that we emphasize in academics and engineering community is learning to learn. The lifelong learning is the way it's oftentimes couched, but it's really a process of learning to learn. You never know what that next project is going to be. You never know what that next problem is going to be. And you never know what the approach to solving that problem is going to be. And that's why it's so important that we give the engineers of today and tomorrow the skill set uh advanced mathematics, advanced science, uh, the, all applying in the foundation, not just to the history part, but to give the skill set to learn and, and grow and research and develop these new methodologies. The curricula that we have in place today in accredited programs uh, for engineering across the United States all embrace this concept to varying levels. And certainly there's just differences between one program and another. But a lot of times those differences are based on two fundamental issues. What are the demands of the graduates of that program? And what are the resources we're able to bring to bear in order to achieve our educational goals? I agree. I think you have to have a really good background and fundamentals in what you and your profession and you can build off. And I think the learning mentality is critical in everything we do today. Because as if the last few years haven't showed us that already, we constantly have to adapt and change and do different things. And that is really important. The biggest challenge that I see here is just everyone that we talk to in terms of civil engineering companies, they're busy to the max right now, and they're having trouble hiring enough people to do the work. And then this infrastructure act is only going to bring more work. And I know ASCE is one of the leading organizations that is working to help us inspire more of our youth to get into civil engineering. 
to me, the equation right now is, you know, we're busy, we can't hire enough people, and here's more work. It's not that the equation doesn't add up that well. Again, I'm not going to challenge that assertion because it is fact. It's not just the consultants. The departments of transportation are finding that they've got a lot of people that are retiring at going to those consulting firms to help fill that gap which then leaves the, the departments of transportation who are already struggling with being competitive in an increasingly competitive marketplace for talent. It is a problem. It's not one that we can immediately solve, but it's one that, again, it's going to be a matter of creatively applying the resources that are available. It may be a matter of recognizing that a professional engineer doesn't need to be doing a particular task. That they can, that an individual with a technical skill set, I'm just going to frame it in the broad sense and say a STEM skill set can actually do the job under the tutelage or under the supervision of somebody that has the expertise to do that. It's getting out of this box of one person being everything. And this is why I said we've been saying this for 20 years at ASCE. In the last century, it was oftentimes expected that one engineer would be the leader. I designed a, a landfill that had an economic uh, net value of oh, almost $200 million, and I was the only engineer on the project. That's been a while now, but I did that in the, the early part of mid part of the 90s, and I was working for the university full time. So this was a part time gig for me. I would never try and do that today. Just the demands, the regulations, the science. I'd be bringing people, geologists, I'd be bringing biologists, I'd be bringing a variety of individuals into this design team. And that's what we're going to have to do. We just don't have any choice. We're going to have to rely on the talents of the broad spectrum of STEM, led by engineers, supervised by engineers, tutored by engineers to pick up on that resource gap that we have, the human resource gap that we're struggling with. It's still going to be there. And this is going to plug in. And a lot of uh, the work that's going to come out of this infrastructure act is going to be incrementally larger. I think the increase in spending on transportation is going to be about 60% of what it would have been under the FAST Act. And it's broader than what we had uh, under the Obama administration in 2009. So you're going to have more depth, more breadth in terms of that particular area. But let's also point out that there are some areas where the level of funding is going to be horrendously larger. Ports uh, is getting uh, 17 times what it would normally be budgeted. So there's going to be a lot of work for in areas that civil engineers probably haven't been working much in. I wish I had a solution. I guess I could come out of retirement and help out, but uh, I don't think that's going to have a big plug for a very big hole. Last point on this, it sounds like if companies out there are interested in, you know, keeping up to date on projects that are coming down the line, they would should be in communication with their DOTs. If that's their area of expertise, they need to be talking with their state DOTs because they're going to be the distribution point. USDOT secretary begins talking with the state DOTs in terms of putting up a strategy and a timeline for implementation and deployment of projects. If I was interested in working in that area, I'd be on the doors of or in the halls of my state DOT, uh, finding out how we get connected, how we find out about the projects, and what the state timeline is for distribution. Because different states will have different timelines. As I said, the pre- the secretary is talking to each of these state administrators, and so it's not one big conversation; it's an individualized conversation. Secretary Buttigieg is meeting with each state's representative to talk about how to deploy these funds. 
and they're custom designing it to, to have the greatest impact as quickly as possible to start deploying these funds. It's an ongoing process. For those of you out there that haven't been that familiar with the act, you've heard about it. I hope that some of the information here was helpful for you to learn a little bit more about the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act. It's an, like I said, it's an exciting time for civil engineers. You know, make no mistake about it. There will be a lot of work to do. There may be some challenges like we talked about here in terms of workforce challenges and finding the right people. But like Dennis said, we have to be leaders and we have to lead people. We have to help people get through these projects and think differently to try to get through them. For those individuals who are members of ASC, ASC has just put together and launched a program to help our members get an excellent perspective on IIJA. This web-based program will help individuals understand how to target, how to develop the resources internally needed to competitively go after the funds that are coming down. Honestly, I haven't looked at it myself, but I know the staff that developed it and they are well-versed in what we're talking about. And I have gotten feedback from members who have participated in it, and they think it is stellar. Go to the ASC website, asc.org, could be easier. Look for the IJA webinar. If you have trouble, reach out to ASC, and we'll get you hooked up with uh, this program. It will give you a leg up on exactly what you're talking about, Anthony. That's great. No, we'll find a link to that and we'll put the link in the show notes so everyone, all of our listeners can find that. Thank you for joining. And we're going to come back in just a minute. We're going to give Dennis a quick break and then we're going to put him on the civil engineering career hot seat. Civil engineering podcast. Civil engineering podcast. All right. We're back with Dennis Truax, the national ASCE president. We've talked a lot about the infrastructure act and the money coming and all that exciting stuff. But now we're going to put you on the hot seat, Dennis. You ready? Yeah, I'm ready. First question here. Do you have any specific rituals that you practice every day? Do you have a, a morning routine, a lunch routine, just something that you do consistently on a daily basis that has contributed to your success? When I was working, routines were more of a routine. Today, being retired, routine is getting up, doing what I want to, when I want to, for whom I want to. And that's not much of a routine. But having thinking about that, now that you posed the question, let me tell you a routine I do go through. I don't do it every day but it is a routine. And it's when I'm going out into society, when I'm going out into the community, when I'm basically leaving the house. First thing I do is put on my wedding ring. This is true ritual. I really do, out of the three rings I'm going to put on my hands, I put on my wedding ring. I do that first because I'm, again, acknowledging my wife, who is my best friend and my partner and my advocate. Those on the podcast probably noticed that I wear a necklace, and most people think that's very 70s, and it probably is. But this necklace is also family, too. I wear this necklace much the same way as I wear my wedding ring. It represents family. The pendant is something that my daughters literally mined out of the hills of North Carolina that had made into a piece of jewelry and gave to me. So I wear the necklace to honor my family, all three of them, my wife and two daughters, I wear the wedding ring as a further symbol and recognition that I have a partner for life, and that's part of that ritual. Two, second ring goes onto my hand is my college class ring. I, it's stupid. I know. I graduated from Virginia Tech. My class ring, class ring I have is the 1975 class ring. By all the information that I have, it is the singularly largest class ring that will ever be made in the United States. We used to joke about back in the 70s that if you went into the state of New York, you had to register it as a lethal weapon. It was so big. 
And uh, I do that in part because it's so freaking heavy that my hand feels wrong if it's not there. It's a ballast thing. It's also, I guess, an acknowledgement of a level of academic attainment. I've, I've always respected all three of my degrees. My second and third degree, my master's and PhD, both came from Mississippi State as a result of wanting to get a master's and going to consulting, which didn't turn out the way I planned. And a lot of that was, again, founded on my education at Virginia Tech. So the one class ring actually represents all three of the degrees to me. And I acknowledge that I have those degrees and therefore have a responsibility to use them for the betterment of others, which then brings me to the third ring. I'm a member of the Order of the Engineer. I don't know if you can see it, TV, whatever being what it is. It's a little steel ring on a little finger. And I invite you to look up the Order, Order of the Engineer. It is a organization that was put together for engineers. It's not exclusive to professional engineers. Anybody that graduates from engineering degree, part of it. We wear it on the little finger of our working hand. In my case, I'm right-handed, so it's on my right hand. And what it means is when you put that hand out and you are working, that ring is a constant reminder that you're an engineer and as such, you're professionally responsible for the lives of other people and the improvement of, of lives of other people and, and the economics and social condition that they exist in. So that ring is my reminder, and it's the last thing I put on, as a, a reminder that, again, I'm a professional engineer, and my responsibility is to others first. And so that's my ritual. They recognize me. My ritual is about recognizing my responsibility to make the lives of others better and to honor the obligations that I have taken on over my life. The Order of the Engineer is great, and you should look it up if you are an engineer. And I think they have regular ceremonies where you can attend and you can get a ring. I believe they excise you and everything. Absolutely correct. What is one book that you might recommend to an engineer? Or just, it doesn't have to be an engineering book or related, but a book that you may have found in your career or life to be helpful for you in your personal or professional development. Does anything jump out for you? The book that jumps out in my mind right now is the book that I'm currently reading through. Dr. Stuart Walsh, a friend, is an author, educator, researcher. Stu's just put out a book, I say just, within the past year, and that's why I say I'm just getting through it, Engineering's Public Protection Predicament, Rubber Baby Buggy Bumpers. Stuart's book takes a really honest look at what it means to be a professional engineer and how we do and do not effectively protect the public in what we do. And this predicament comes, as he's talked about, and as I've said to others as well, it comes from the fact that this profession did not continue to grow and morph and recognize a broader responsibility like the other professions. If you look where engineering was at the beginning of the last century. We had a higher education requirement. We put more demands on our graduates than even doctors did. But look where doctors are today, and architects are today, and accountants are today, and dentists are today, and the list goes on. And we as engineers have abrogated our responsibility to maintain the educational standards and relegated this responsibility to universities to manage much the same way as they had managed arts and sciences classes and liberal arts classes and everything else. We've been subjected to a number of factors that have put uh, this profession and our ability to protect ourselves and welfare of the public in jeopardy. And I think he's captured to the extent that I've read so far. And based on the comments of my friends who have or are reading it, I recommend it highly. I think it's a book that anybody in this profession should pick up. 
and then I could go on to a list of about three other authors that I read routinely, but most of those are management books. I'm a Simon Sinek fan. Start with why? Yeah, and then Mark Sanborn is another author that is a prolific author and speaker and talks about service leadership and engagement. Just any of their textbooks, anything they write, I end up reading. All right, next question, Dennis. Thinking about maybe some of your managers in the past or just managers or leaders in the world of civil engineering that you know, what are some of the traits of really good managers, great managers in the world of civil engineering, especially now, like you said, the world is evolving and there's going to be a lot of complex and bigger projects going on. From your experience, and you've probably, especially through ASE, met a lot of leaders in civil engineering. What are some of the traits of those leaders that you found? I think the single most important thing that an engineering manager, a professional engineer in charge of an office or even a corporation needs to recognize is that their single greatest resource, if not their only resource, are the people that work for them. We're not manufacturing widgets here. Our product is creative. And I don't mean that in the sense that those people that that are engineers make widgets aren't part of that. That's not what I mean here. What I mean is our resource are those people that are creative and come up with those solutions and serve the need of the company by serving the need of the client. And if we have a workforce that is under-resourced, underappreciated, they become disgruntled, they become uh, less productive. I say this, I emphasize this, because this is one of the missions I've been talking about sometimes. The expectations of employees today needs to change to represent the mindset of the employees today. What my generation considered success is not what the current generations consider success. So if we're still applying the same yardstick to that we used 20, 30 years ago, even 10 years ago in some regards, as metrics for defining success, and we don't validate that with the workforce. Do they want more money? Yeah, everybody wants more money. Management 101, I've known this for 30 years, anybody's taking management knows this money doesn't make you happy. Not getting money makes you mad, but it's workplace environment. It's appreciation. It's all those things that keep people from burning out. And then I mentioned earlier, it's also giving people time to be creative. This push to have individuals be at 100% billable hours. I know that's not what people are pushing about talking about, but this, I mean, if I've got to be working every single minute of the day, when I take a break and read my journal, when I take a break and think about what could be, not what is. In framing it in a lot of different ways and pulling all that piece together, that's the one lesson I've seen from successful managers. They recognize they are where they are because of the people that they work with, not the people that are under them, the people they work with in order to assure that the products that they're putting out, the designs, the construction projects, the planning projects, everything that we do is successful. That's great. No, and I think that's timely, especially based on what we talked about before with all this funding coming. There's going to be competitive salaries in a lot of firms for people, right? You could go somewhere, you can get a similar amount of money, but it's about the workplace environment. It's about the culture in the company. It's about how people are treated by their managers. So I think that's great. Remember also, Anthony, it's also work-life balance. This idea of people working, I count on my hands or toes. All the people that I've heard complain and leave companies because they got tired of the 60-hour-a-week, week in and week out work. I mean, there's more to life for this generation 
than making a buck or the promise of making a bonus. It's work-life balance. It's living in the present. It's having impact. It's having impact in the society as a corporation, as an individual. It's a big piece. and it's, it's tough to do. And it requires talking to people, not just looking at data and saying, oh, yeah, they should be happy. With people working from home a lot more, that becomes more difficult. There used to be a blurred line between work and home. Now there's zero line because you're literally working at home. So it becomes very difficult. Excellent point. I got one final question for you, Dennis. We call it the civil engineering career elevator advice question. If you got into an elevator with a young civil engineer and you had 30 to 40 seconds to give him or her some career advice, what would it be? This is what I tell students in the intro class, told students in my intro class and in my senior design class routinely. Find your passion for change. Find your passion for this profession. Embrace it. Recognize that you can be impactful as a civil engineer. Recognize that you have abilities that nobody else has that will make you, if you apply yourself, the best version of a civil engineer you can be. We all have different abilities, aptitudes, interests, and priorities, and that's all fine. That all factors into this. But developing a passion for this profession and for the opportunities this profession provides allows students in their first year to get through that, what I call, brick wall class. It might be dynamics. It could be calculus four. It could be differential equations. It could be a civil design class. Whatever that class is that you hit, you go, man, I just, maybe I should change majors. But if you've got a passion, you're willing to push through hard times to get to the reward on the other end. That makes the difference. Get the passion. With that passion and with that commitment, you cannot be stopped. I think I just went to the extra floor. As we've talked about today, there are many different types of jobs in the world of civil engineering today. And those different types of jobs are going to keep evolving with all these new technologies. So find your passion. You're going to find something to do in the world of civil engineering and make sure you're doing something that you love to do. I'm sure it'll be an exciting ride for sure. So Dennis Truax, 2022 ASC National President, thank you so much for taking some time out of your busy, busy schedule and spending some time with us on the Civil Engineering Podcast. Thank you very much for having me. This has been a lot of fun. I have been enjoyed engaging with you and the work you're doing is really good. I've watched a couple of your podcasts. I'm not all, how many are 200? I don't think I've watched them all. Yeah, but you've lived them, but you do a great job. And I appreciate what it is that you're doing and the way you're lifting up this information for everybody. Thanks a lot. Thank you, Dennis. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Dennis. I've been getting a lot of questions about the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act. I haven't been able to really explain it that well to our clients, the civil engineers, because there's just a lot going on with it. So for him to come on to take some time out of his very busy travel schedule and talk us through it, I really did appreciate it. And I hope that you found it helpful. And we will find the program that he referred to that ASCE is working on to help guide people through it. And we'll put a link in the show notes. And you can find those show notes at civilengineeringpodcast.com. Look for episode number 195. There you'll find a summary of the key points discussed in today's episode, as well as links to any of the resources, websites, or books mentioned during the episode. And remember, if you're looking for some people leadership training, project management training, or even seller doer training, check out our website at engineeringmanagementinstitute.org. Click on the upcoming training button at the top of the page, or give us a call, 800-920-4007. That's 800-920-4007. Until next time, I wish you the best in all of your civil engineering career endeavors. 
The Civil Engineering Podcast is published by the Engineering Management Institute and is part of EMI's Civil Engineering Media and Entertainment Network. The opinions on the show are those of the hosts and guests, not their employers. For information on EMI's people and project management skills training programs for civil engineering professionals, visit engineeringmanagementinstitute.org.